Any sports lovers in here this morning? Raise your hand if you're a sports lover. Yeah. Uh, there's something about sports that I really like, and that is that there's, um, there's sort of like this objective reality at the end, the ranking and the timing and all of that. Like there's, there's definitive winners and losers, and win, lose, or draw, it's, uh, I don't know, there's something about it that, that's fun to have that. We are constantly timing, challenging, doing things that the park turns into a mini Olympics, you know, as we do an obstacle course or whatever else, and we're just having, having fun with that. Yesterday at the beach, we were playing spike ball, and uh, sometimes things can get out of, out of hand a little bit. Um, I ended up punching uh, Kirk Hinton uh, in the bicep, and I ended up body checking my wife. These are people I dearly love and, and care about, um, but I needed to get to that little yellow ball. So uh, sports sometimes brings out the best in us and sometimes brings out the worst in us. By the way, there's an opportunity for forgiveness. Um, Kirk and I are worshiping in the same place today, and I think all is good. Um, one of my sports growing up in, uh, in high school was swimming. And the hardest part of swimming is the mind-numbing boringness of it. Uh, you, just, you just are bored. The only variety in swimming is this, the water temperature, um, the variety of strokes. And when I first started swimming, I thought, man, there's only four choices? Like, that's, you know, that's not very many. Uh, and then the final variant is what lane you're swimming in. Other than that, swimming is really easy to learn. Uh, you go and swim in a straight line. Your coach says, go swim to that wall. And when you get to that wall, turn around and then swim back to the other wall. When you get to that wall, turn around and swim back to the other wall. Now, if you ever get lost, uh, just look down. There's a little direction for you. Painted on the bottom of every pool for competitive swimming is your directions. It's a straight, boring line. So you see why, like for a person who has an active mind, that this is, this is a difficult, uh, this is a difficult um, sport, but I enjoyed it. Swim in your lane is the title this morning. Now, we have a wide variety of ages in here, and here's what I need you to do. I need you to think about this. Uh, swim in your lane is going to be used as a metaphor. It's going to be used like a word picture for living your life, okay? Swimming in your lane while you're racing in real life is not that challenging because those are hard plastic things, and it's actually kind of difficult to be swimming and actually go over that if you're trying to win a race. Like, no one really does that. But in life, it's super easy to get lost. In life, it's super easy to be annoyed that there even are lanes or people are telling us what to do and where to go. And so we have this thing in us that sort of fights against it. Often as part of my Bible reading, I just read the proverb of the day. There's 31 proverbs. There's often 31 days in a month. So you just pick up the day, your calendar and your proverb, and you go, okay. So I was sitting here in the office on the 30th, and I read two places in this proverb of the day that showed to me that I am swimming uh, against this sort of unseen current of more. I saw the idea of seeking all that is needed versus seeking all that is available. Look at Proverbs uh, 38. It says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Seeking what is needed versus seeking all that is available. Look at verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four that never say enough. 
the grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. If you look at those two passages sort of side by side, here's what you think about and realize. That enough doesn't seem to be taught or celebrated in our culture very often. That just being content with enough and then looking to see where the extra resources should go isn't taught or celebrated very often. Now, Romans has brought us to a really important place in the discussion that that Paul's been building, and it's bringing it to us. Specifically, how are we to think about ourselves? What are we to do with ourselves? If you go with what is normal in our culture you will find yourself running on empty as you ever seek more because there is so much available to us at all times. We've seen in Romans 12 this shift happen that we have a responsibility to our maker. And these first eight verses in Romans 12 all talk specifically about how do we steward the gift of self. God's given us the gift of self. What are we to do with the gift of self? Now, by way of review from two weeks ago, because I know it was a little while ago, uh, we act in accordance with our thoughts about the world. So the way you think about the world, remember we talked about the world that is either created by God or a world that uh, that came to be in, in sort of time plus chance happening. So the way we think about the world really determines... Um, the way we act in the world, and specifically now, the way we think about ourselves has massive implications. So thoughts take place in bodies, and then bodies determine actions and values. I talked two weeks ago. Some of you youth were off at camp two weeks ago. I'd highly recommend that you go and listen to the podcast because I talked about things that are hotly debated and discussed on your campuses, amongst your friends, on your screens, and in the news regularly right now. And in covering these different topics, the idea was to say, how do we think and act in a world that God made and has something to speak into? Now, today is another text that I think, as a Christian, especially if you're a younger Christian, older Christians, you can back me up on this. I think you will come back to this passage of Scripture over and over and over again in your life as a Christian. Romans 12, the first eight verses of Romans 12, um, man, I, I find myself just going back to it so many times. Swim in your lane. Here's where we're going. It takes knowing your lane, it takes actually swimming, and then it takes staying in your lane, all right? So, number one, if you're taking notes, know your lane. Follow along with me. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Sober thinking leads to sober living. Don't think that you're better than you really are. Instead, be accurate. Look at that word sober for a second. If you have a Bible, circle it, highlight it, draw your attention to it. And what is the opposite of sober? What do we think of? Drunk, right? Now, a person who is drunk is characterized by these sorts of things. Poor judgment. Um, A loss 
of balance. That's why we don't want them driving. And blurry truth. Reality gets sort of, sort of blurred. Now watch what comes with sobriety. Clarity replaces distortion. And steadiness replaces unbalance or being tipsy. And reality replaces escape. Now, I know that some of you in this room have very intimate personal knowledge, either with your own life story or someone very near and dear to you, and you would look at those three things and say, wow, it's so much better to live sober. I've got my life back. I've got reality back. I don't need to escape. I'm not unsteady everywhere I go. Every single person you ever see has self-importance issues. Everyone. And here's the truth of it. Your default or their default may go towards self-loathing or it may go towards self-exaltation. But what's the common denominator there? The self. The self is at the center of self-loathing. The self is at the center of self-exaltation. Those are kind of two sides of pride's coin. It's the same thing being expressed in different ways. Uh, turn in your Bibles, leave your finger in Romans 12, flip over a page to the left to Romans 10 verse 2 for a second. Paul has already shown us how off we get when the head is wrong. Romans 10, 2 says this. He's talking about his countrymen, the Jews. I want to show you that Jews get this wrong, Gentiles get this wrong. That covers the whole earth. Romans 10, 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's what Paul is saying. Jews thought too highly of their own efforts. They had a high estimation of themselves, and that led to prideful thinking. They were wrong in the head. It led to pride, and pride leads to death. The very starting point of being born again is that you would come childlike, right? That you would humble yourself, that you would say, I need directions. Difficult for us to say. So the Jews thought too highly of themselves. Flip over to chapter 11. Three times in chapter 11, verse 18, verse 20, and verse 25. It's in your notes. You can go back and check me on this. But he says this, do not be arrogant, verse 18. Do not become proud, but fear, verse 20. And in verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. All three of these references are speaking to the Gentiles and the Gentiles who were late arrivers to the scene. As Paul said, they were wild olive branches being grafted into this tree. Somehow the Gentiles were getting it in their head that they should be prideful about that and that they somehow support the root. Paul's saying... Don't become proud. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Do you see that in two chapters, chapter 10, it's the Jews. Too high of an estimation of themselves leads to death. And the Gentiles get in on the grace of God and start becoming proud about that. And we all have a high estimation problem. Now, you wouldn't know it to look at me standing here, but I am freakishly good at swimming like a frog. It's called breaststroke. And for whatever reason, when I was a little kid, uh, I realized that I was really good at this. I was beating kids older than me uh, and, and all of that. But one of my deep and great loves growing up was football. 
And uh, I would play football with my friends, and I was always really good at football. And then middle school happened, and a really deeply disturbing thing occurred. Everyone else grew, and I didn't. And when you don't grow and you love football, you know what happens? You die. It gets really, really scary. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool to play football in high school? And I looked at my body and I said, people who play football with my body, they get broken. Like they just break. And so I, I looked at myself and I thought, well, Prospect High School does not have a cycling team. I was super into cycling. That's good for my body type uh, at the time. It's a little bit heavier now. Um, and they didn't have a surfing team. We were kind of too far from the coast. But they did have a swim team. So I went out for swimming instead of football. And you know what? That sobriety checkpoint saved my life. I'm convinced of it. I probably would have died going out for football. Or I would have at least had a limp or a bad back or something go on that was really, really terrible. Sober judgment can spare your life too. Now, what is the absolute best way to get a, a self-assessment? Uh, you look in the mirror, right? Um, if you are older than 22, you remember the sort of house of mirrors? And you kind of go in front of the mirrors and like your head's super elongated and then it's short and then you get your biceps and they're big and then they're droopy, all that. Anyone tracking with me? Okay, okay. Younger than 22, here's how you do it. You go to Snapchat, you put the filter that has like rainbow unicorns shooting out of your nose, right? Same sort of a thing. And here's the general idea of that. Super fun, but not real, right? So you look at that to kind of get a laugh and kind of, and kind of go, oh, that's, that's kind of clever and fun, but it's not real. An accurate picture of who we are comes from the one who made us. The Bible itself is referred to as a mirror. So you read the Bible, and the Bible read, reads you. And in the scriptures, part of why we teach from the scriptures every single week is this. It's God telling us who he is, but furthermore, it's God telling us who we are in relation to him. So the Bible acts as a mirror. Sober judgment comes from looking in that mirror, the Bible. So what does the Bible mirror say of us? If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, here's what it very explicitly says. It says we are all the same. And it says we are all different. Everyone who's a Christian is all the same and all the different. Look at verse 4. Paul uses our body as a picture of this truth of all being the same, all being different. Verse 4 says this. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. He gets in this idea that we're all the same and we're all different. Did you know that God preaches from your pocket every single day? On our money, it says these words, in God we trust, right? That's a little mini sermon that sits in your pocket, sits in your wallet. Uh, it's not on Apple Pay. That's the bummer about that. Um, but it's, it's a little preaching tool that, that's right there as you look at that. Um, here is another truth that you're uh, preached to often. Anyone know what this means? This is Latin. There you go. Out of many, one. And this is such a noble idea. It's biblical, as you see from Romans 12. It's such a noble idea that it is all over our money as well. So you will see this phrase tucked in there, and now you know what it means. And when you see it, you go, Romans 12. I know that. 
That is a godly idea. That is a noble pursuit. Now, we know in our country, we haven't dialed this in yet, have we? Man, there's so much division. There's so much work at maintaining unity, which is also a scriptural idea. Here's the point. Individual body parts only make sense in relation to the whole. No one sees a heart and goes, wow, what a cool heart sitting there in the sidewalk. You run from a heart sitting on the sidewalk because that looks really scary. You call 911. That's the instruction, okay? We see a body part removed from the body, and it's not ideal. We don't even like it. It doesn't make any sense unless it is with the whole. So how are we the same? We're the same because of this. If you are a Christian, you are saved by grace through faith. There's one name that deserves praise. It's why we just sang of his name. It's Jesus Christ, and that is how we are all the same. We were all roped into one family, or to use Paul's metaphor this morning, we are all part of one body. Any Christian you ever meet, no matter what they look like, no matter what they uh, smell like, no matter where they live, no matter how you pronounce their name or what language they're speaking, they are part of one body. They are identical to you in that sense. And yet, we are all different. Each person here has been uniquely thought up and put together by God. Now, whether you acknowledge it or not today, you were made on purpose. God designed you, broke the mold, and you are utterly unique. No one like you. Psalm 139 says this, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. We are all the same. We are all different. Know your lane. Same body, but you differ as much as a calf muscle, an eyebrow, or a spleen. You are a gift from God. So what that means is this, your body and mind, which Romans 1 and 2 has already covered, are gifts from God. So these kinds of things are gifts. Your gender is a gift. Your IQ ranking, if you know your IQ and it's higher or lower, wherever it fits, that's a gift from God. Some of you have a fast processor speed. Some of you have a loading, loading, loading. That's your your processing speed, gift from God. Energy level. Some of you are energizer bunnies. Some of you get up, brush your teeth, get ready, and need some rest, right? There's just different energy levels. Gift from God. Here's what else is a gift from God. Your family, your neighborhood, your experiences, your natural abilities. These are all gifts given to you by God, and there's no exchange policy, right? Some of you have tried. You want to exchange some of those gifts. No, thank you. Those are gifts from God. Sometimes it takes a long time to look back and see this word redemption come true in your life. And you go, God, I see how you're working. I see how you toughen me up in that. I see how you use that past hurt to now go and comfort other people. Every single human being you ever meet are gifted with these kinds of things. That is unique across the board. Every Christian is gifted with something more. At the new birth, you are given some very specific birthday presents. You're gifted the Holy Spirit, 
and you are gifted supernatural spiritual gifts at your birthday. Now, Psalm 33, 14 says this, From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all. Think about this. God fashioned your heart, and he gifted you accordingly. God made you unique, and then he gifted you according to that design. Now, we're going to get to the gifts in just a second, but before we do, I want you to look at two unbiblical thoughts that are sort of like shots of alcohol that change our thinking about ourselves, but we hear this all the time everywhere. The first one is this. You can be anything you want to be. Here's the general rule of thought. You, through hard work, determination, and by ignoring the rules that were set up at the beginning of the movie... Because you are the hero of the story, because you know in your gut what is best, you can do or become anything. But you'll need a little bit of magical pixie dust, so here, you can have some of that. And that storyline, while super inspiring and helpful in some regards, is not true. Let me give you a quick reality check, okay? Anyone holding rotten tomatoes? I hope not. The reality is, you and I stink at most things. We're not that great at most things. Genetics, opportunities, timing, these all play a role in shaping our experiences. Now, there's a guy by the name of Tom Brady. Tom Brady has won five (laughs) Super Bowl... Let's just call it six. He has won six... (laughs) I'm, I'm just saying... Now, here's what's amazing about Tom Brady. Huge reaction. Everyone knows Tom Brady. You know what? He stinks at most things at football. He does. Blocking, receiving, breakaway speed, special teams, kicking, coaching, refing, medical staff, the little guy who runs water out to people. He stinks at those things. He's not good at them. What is Tom Brady good for? Hang on. Don't don't say anything. Watch your tongue. Guard your tongue. You'll be held accountable for every loose word. Here's what Tom Brady is good for. Listen, listen carefully. He leads with diligence. He has an accurate arm. And he somehow orchestrates wins. You boil Tom Brady down to some things that he's really, really good at, that's what it is. Uh, I saw this news clip in 1994 of 17-year-old Tom Brady being interviewed by Dan Fouts. And Dan Fouts said this, I don't know Tom Brady. He's up at Sarah High School in San Mateo. I don't know Tom Brady. Tell me about Tom Brady. And here's what he said. You ready for this? 17-year-old sober judgment Tom Brady. He said, well, I have a strong arm. I'm accurate. And I have a high work ethic. I'll do what it takes. And then he said this, what I lack is speed. But that will come. Now, he was off on that one. That one never came. (laughs) No matter how hard you work, Tom Brady's not quick. But... Amazing at 17 years old to have a sober assessment. Tom Brady knew his lane, and that's why we all can't stand him now, right? (laughs) I mean, think about it. Why don't we like him? Because it's boring to watch him win and win and win and win. Tom Brady knew his 
lane and had sober judgment. All right, number two is this. Here's the second drunk way of viewing yourself. That low self-esteem is the major problem with you. Here's why that's so dangerous. If that is the starting point, then the solution is, I must think more about myself, and I must think more of myself. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says something different. The Bible says that a high estimation is the, is the problem, and so the starting point is different. And it doesn't necessarily say think lower of yourself. It says think accurately about yourself. Have a sober judgment about yourself. So it may not even be that you need to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Jesus said the eyes turned outward, the life being given away, the life lived and committed to sharing and building up the body and other people. That's the life of joy. That's the life that is blessed. If you're taking notes, write down uh, the churches in Revelation. Just write that down in your notes. I went back and reread these. Here's what's interesting. Starting in Revelation chapter 2, it's Jesus acting like a mirror, and he's walking amongst the seven churches in Revelation, and what he's doing is he's giving them an accurate assessment of where they are. He is a mirror walking around to different churches. Remember Ephesus? He says, Ephesus, you guys work really hard, but you don't love. You've lost your first love. Sardis, you guys have a reputation of being an alive church. Here's the mere truth. You're dead. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe your social media feed. You are dead, even though you have this reputation of being alive. Here's what's fascinating about the seven churches in Revelation. Ready? None of them suffered from low self-esteem. Jesus didn't go to any of the churches and say, you can be whatever you want. You just need to believe. Find your happy place, and you can achieve whatever you want to become. He didn't say that. Go and read it. Here's what he says. Find your lane and get back to it. Church, you're, you're living right here. Get to this. You're allowing this to creep in. Get to that. You're doing this. Keep that going. You used to do this. Get back to it. It's fascinating to read that with these words, know your lane in your background. So, Sober is better than drunk. Know your lane. Now we get on to sort of the heart of the matter, and that's this. Swim. Verse 6 says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them is swim in our metaphor. It's not enough to know your lane assignment. It's not enough to understand all about your stroke, you must get wet. 1 Peter 4 says that each has received a gift. That's why I can say if you're a Christian, you have a gift. 1 Corinthians 12 says that the gifts are for the common good. They're not individual. They're not just for you privately. They're to build up the body. And here in Romans, Paul says, use them. What good is an unused gift? An unused gift does at least a couple of things. It's dishonoring to the giver. It's just dishonoring to not use it. But secondly, it's actually disobedient not to use it. Remember the parable of the talents? Jesus is telling this story that says basically this landowner entrusts ten parts, five parts, and one part of his property to some servants. Goes away on a trip. He comes back. The ten doubled. The five doubled. What did the one do? Buried it. 
I knew you to be a hard man. I didn't want to waste it, so I just buried it. Jesus comes down on the one who didn't use the gift that was entrusted, calling him wicked. It's not just dishonoring, it's disobedient not to use the gift that you've been given. Your lane does no good if you aren't in motion. Now, I was a swimmer in, uh, as a little kid. I would swim and, and do, the, do the deal. And by the time I got to high school, I remember looking and just going, I love sports. I love giving myself. I was an energetic kid. And again, I already told you, not tall enough for basketball uh, nor skilled enough. Um, baseball, I would have taken a nap every day. It seems too boring. Um, and football, I would have died. So I went out for swimming, but it almost didn't happen. And here's why. I thought about the odds. Like I'm not a huge math guy, but I just thought about the odds of that much time in a Speedo and the way I valued my social life, I thought something bad is bound to happen. Like, that can't be good. That can't be a good sport to be, to be involved in. But I overcame my fear with the help of my mom and oldest brother who were swimmers. No, go and do it. And that gift being used helped me. That gift being used helped our team. An unused gift helps no one. Think about your gifted body parts, that if they don't exercise their role, they become dead weight to the rest of your body. They actually become a burden to you if they aren't functioning in the way that they are designed to function. We've been using this term for a better part of a year now called heading. And heading carries with it this idea of um, again, we were sort of approaching our 10-year anniversary as a church. We just said, God, we want to reassess our lane. We want to figure out where do you want us pouring into. And when you think about Christians, Christians are, are guided and seeking to harness the power of the wind, the Holy Spirit. But we're not individual kiteboarders. We are called to live together. And so this thing called NBC, our church, is our sailboat. We come together and we seek the Holy Spirit. We are powered by the Holy Spirit together. Now, thinking about that, we felt very led to this three area focused. Simple, which is doing the right things well, keeping laser focused on that, and keeping the kingdom accessible, not overcomplicating it. Number two is family, which is, as a church, we're going to grab onto the biblical metaphor of family, and we're going to govern that way. We're going to think that way. We're going to program and process that way. We're going to really highlight that. And we are going to be fiercely supportive of families. And the third one is this. I think every Christian church preaches this. We said we are going to double down on getting this right. We are going to live and program and budget and staff as if we actually believe that every single Christian has a gift, and that gift is supposed to be being used to build up the body. One of the very first sort of major initiatives, we said, this is our lane. We reassessed and said, God, we, we clearly have you calling us to this, is a big shift starting last fall from children ministry to family ministry. And a massive initiative has gone on to say, we have the most willing and readily available disciples we will ever have on the planet in children at this church. They live with us. We help them brush their teeth. We take them to school. We teach them. We feed them. All of that. And here they are in our midst. 
And we are, as a church family, we're going to pour into that. So that's, that's sort of in a, in a policy look. That's been a ministry result of that. Now, on any given Sunday, in any church across America, this is a more accurate picture of how church happens. There is a crew that knows their role. They are hard at work. They are doing it diligently. Things are moving and happening. The boat is not capsizing. And there are a handful of other people, sometimes in churches, many, 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 many other people sitting there with passengers, and their main role is that they have their life vest on. What we've said is this. We want to move from that to saying we want everyone to know their role and be functioning in their role. Now, hear me really clearly. If you are new to this church, if you are not a disciple of Jesus, here's the message you'll receive at our church. Welcome aboard, sit down, and we'll give you a a drink with a little umbrella in it, and we'll say, enjoy the ride, try not to fall out. That's sort of the message, right? We will welcome you as you discover that. If you are old here, I'm not talking age, If you are old here, you are a disciple of Jesus, and you've been around for any length of time, we are going to say a totally different message. Get to work. Find your place and get after it. We've set a course, and we are racing to win, and we are less if you aren't functioning in your giftedness. In fact, truth be told, don't let this land too harshly, but you're actually dead weight. If you are just sitting at a church year after year after year after year, You're a body part, a part of the body that isn't functioning. We can have more conversation about this later, but I always tell new members this, and people we go visit, this is always a two-way conversation. This isn't just on church leadership's job to figure out the role for everyone, and I'm not saying this is your job to just start doing stuff. And I'm like, get down from the roof. We don't need a roofer right now. This is a marriage. This is a a communication. This is a, a, a sorting out process where we figure this out together. Every Christian has gifts. Every Christian is to use their gifts. So swimming is better than sitting. Get moving or stay moving. Here's number three. Number three is stay in your lane. I used to have a professor at San Jose Christian College, and I love this. It stayed with me for a long, long time. He said this. He said, do most what you do best. Do most what you do best. You'll do a lot of other stuff. In fact, as we look at the gifts, you'll see there's a lot of these things you're just called to do as a Christian. But some of you are uniquely gifted to do that really, really well. There's specific gifts that are listed here, but they also each have a qualifier. And this morning, rather than spending the rest of our time dissecting the gifts, which there are books and blogs galore looking at this, I want to highlight on something that I don't hear nearly as much about, and that's sort of the qualifiers that are there. So verse 6, it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul isn't simply listing gifts here. He is exhorting different individual parts of the body to activate their gifting. To employ the gifts for the good and health of the whole body. 
Now look at the screen for a second. In red are sort of the modifiers that I talked about. Each gift comes with an exhortation. It comes with a warning, which tells me this. Listen carefully. You will be tempted to stop swimming in your lane. You'll be tempted to switch lanes mid-course and abandon the race that you've been called to. Some of these gifts simply repeat the gift. If service, then serve. Teaching, then teach. Exhorting, then exhort. What's that about? I think that has to do with this. Don't stop. If you're a servant and gifted at serving, keep serving. If you're teaching, if you're exhorting, even if no one thanks you anymore, keep doing it. Furthermore, develop that gift. There's more to that lane. There's more that you could be doing. What if we all came and thought throughout our week and we hunted for ways to use our gifting? We didn't wait around and say, well, no one's asked me to exhort. No one's asked me to serve. I'd be willing, but no one's asked. I've got crazy teaching gifts, but no one's ever given me a platform. What if we just hunted for opportunities to say, God, you've given me this gift. It would be dishonoring and disobedient not to put them to use. And so we just started doing that. Others, though, point to specific ways that it can go wrong. Listen to this. Prophets. Prophets are to prophesy in proportion to our faith. So to the prophet, it would be this. Don't add self to what God is telling you to speak. How about the contributor? A contributor is to do so generously or with sincerity. No mixed motives. Easy for that to become something that you use to steer the ship. Leaders are to lead with zeal, or some of your translations say with diligence. Here's why that's true. If you've ever tried to lead anything in the home, in a school, uh, in a church, in the business field, you know that it's easy to want to quit. You've been tempted to quit, usually within the first week. Hey, you're the leader now. Great. When do I get to stop? So the Bible says, lead with zeal, lead with diligence. And finally, to the merciful. If you've been gifted supernaturally with mercy, you are deeply sensitive to the needs of other people. And it says to do that with cheerfulness. Why is that? Because I think that people who have the gift of mercy and see the needs and feel deeply what other people are feeling can easily turn to resentment. It can feel begrudging. Why is no one else? Why don't we have a ministry that does this? Why am I the only one meeting these needs? So there's an exhortation to say, stay in your lane. You're going to be tempted to go in different directions. Do it cheerfully. Show your acts of mercy with cheerfulness. With every gift, it is so easy to become proud or complacent in your gifting. And this leads to coasting, and coasting never wins races. Uh, this is Phelps Face, and uh, Phelps Face is one of those things that almost broke the internet a few years ago. You who are Olympian fans remember this really, really well. His rival is taunting him right in front of him. This is pre-race. He's getting psyched up for his race that he's about to win. And his rival is sitting right in front of him, dancing and taunting him. Later on in the pool, check this picture out. Phelps keeps his eyes straight ahead, and his rival, Chad LeClaux, is caught peeking. 
and he literally watches Phelps win the 200-meter gold medal. He didn't stay in his lane. He didn't stay on his race. Phelps is focused. He has set his face like flint, is what it says of Jesus toward the cross. He didn't look to the left or the right. He didn't let other things bother him. He is looking straight ahead. The rival who loses is caught peeking. Stay in your lane. God gifts with specific gifts to specific people for very specific tasks. Watch for it. Some of you have journals filled with this being true. And you, God, you just go, God, no way. You did it again. All I was was available, and I saw how you've used me with this gifting to contribute this specific way, and it's built up the body. I hope, Christian, I hope you have a treasure of things between you and the Lord as you look back on your Christian walk where you just see how he's gifted you. Swimming can get really hard and boring, but here's the thing. With each turn of the wall, if you're looking for it, there's encouragement waiting for you, right? This is what I saw hour after hour after hour after hour after hour in the pool. God offers little glimpses of hope, little glimpses of, I'm right here. You're right on course. Keep doing what you're doing, even though it's boring, even though you've already done this flip turn a hundred times. Keep going. Keep at it. You're useful. So finishing is better than starting. Church, get going in your gift or keep going in your gift. All right, let me bring this all together with a really specific initiative that showed up in your bulletin this morning called Love Youth. Here's what Love Youth is about, and it's a perfect application for this morning. We have a need on Thursday nights. We have men's groups and women's groups that meet. We have a band that rehearses most every week, and many of these people have children. So we've had childcare needs that have had to go on. Now, we know our lane is a church, so we are going to support families. We are, not, we, are, we are going to do everything in our power not to have a program for the parents that really needs to be focused on the parents and not provide well for their kids. We don't want to make that a burden. So we're going to provide for the kids so that the adults can grow. Here's what's so great about this program. This program started last fall with a couple of our young adults, high schoolers and college, college students, that basically came up with this idea that said, look, we are desiring to hang out as high schoolers with our middle schoolers. And boba tea is great, and Starbucks is great, but that's costly, and we don't want to just sit around all the time and just constantly converse over boba, as hip as that sounds. What if, what if we invested our time that we want to pour into middle schoolers and, and invest in one another? What if we did that by accomplishing something that would serve the body. And so they came up with the idea, and this has been going on since fall, of just pairing a high schooler with a middle schooler to serve the church family. When this idea came to me, here's how knowing your lane is really, really easy for leadership decision-making. When that came to my ears, here's what I thought. That's alignment. A part of simple is we're not going to do 98 things. We're going to do a few things, and whenever possible, we're going to align our efforts. Do you see how that's alignment to say, we want to invest in kids with youth, 
and we want to serve the church. That's the same thing on the same exact night. That's alignment. Secondly, that's going to serve our families. So when I heard this idea, I processed it, and I said, this is our lane, yes. There's the decision. We don't need to have committees. We don't need to pray about it. We don't need to talk about it. We know our lane. We say, this is, this is great. And so this is being formalized a little bit. Uh, some pioneers, some early adopters did this last fall, and starting in a couple of weeks, is that right, two weeks? Two Thursdays, uh, this is going to be, become sort of a more formal thing. And let me show you how this is sort of a win-win-win situation. Adults, come to your group, bring your kids, band, come and serve, and bring your kids. We want your kids to come here. That's a win. Um, some of you come to band and your spouse is left doing bedtime alone, and so you've weighed serving the church family with serving your home family. What if it was actually a night off, and you got to bring the kids, and it somehow worked out that maybe spouse could be at home and have a break while the kids are being well-watched here? That's a win. Here's what the youth get to win. You get to try out your gifts. What we're going to do is we're going to resource you high schoolers and middle schoolers, and we're going to say, let the Thursday night program on the week that you're assigned to do it, let it take on your personality. Let it sort of take on some things, and you will get to sort of try out some things, and you might have acts of mercy. You might have some teaching going on. You might have some leadership that gets developed. You might have some contributing that gets developed, and you'll get to see that uh, fleshed out in a low-risk, fun thing going on uh, with some coaching. That's a win. And here's how the kids win. The kids win because you get to come experience church at night. And coming to church at night is different than Sunday morning. We want to actually have a program that just feels totally different than it does on Sunday morning. So there's going to be some things we're already dreaming up, but we're going to try and let the youth have the ideas. But it's going to be a totally different experience. And you may not appreciate this yet, but I bet your parents will. You're going to get to rub shoulders with some teens that you ought to start patterning your life after and modeling your life after. You're going to rub shoulders with people older than you that are going to be good examples of what to do with your Thursday night as a teenager. That's love youth, and I want to wrap up with this. What does God do? What do we do? If you're taking notes, write these down. God tells us who we are. Why is the Bible to be read regularly? Why is it to be thought about? Why is it to be studied? Why is it to be hidden in our hearts? Because the Bible tells us. It's a mirror. It tells us who we are. It gives us an accurate picture of who we are. God also designs hearts and assigns gifts. Early on in your Christian walk, hear me, this will be an act of faith. You'll just have to trust that that's true. To know that, God, you designed me and you've gifted me. I'm not sure what that is yet. I want to find my lane. I want to get moving. Here's one of the easiest ways to discover your lane. Being in community, being a part of a family, you will get things like this. Man, thank you for always praying with such faith. Thank you for always noticing that new person. Thank you for always bringing us back to the word. Thank you for being so bold in your lifestyle about being a witness for Christ. Some of you know the gifts that are listed elsewhere, and you could rattle off spiritual gifts that make the person that way. So when you start hearing that, you go, you know what? Maybe God has put 
Like most of the time, you go, that's just in me. I just do that. I don't think that's anything worthwhile or to be thanked about. You get going in that lane, and God will steer you in that. Lastly, what do we do? We seek and maintain an accurate self-reflection. That's not just found in Scripture. One of the things we say around community groups is this. We fellowship around the Word. So we fellowship with one another, we speak into one another's life, and we let the Scriptures read us in our situations. And finally, we use our gifts. I hope this opens up a flood of questions for you community group leaders. I hope our elders, many of whom are sitting in the room today, get flooded with emails. Hey, I feel convicted. I want to step into this. Help me. Help me figure out what the next step is. That's my hope and prayer. Ben, why don't you come on up and we pray. God, thank you so much for this church family. I thank you, God, for the distinct and clear ways that you are leading us. I thank you for the gifts that you have equipped this family for. God, I pray that individually... We would look at this, but we would also look corporately and just say, what is it that we as a church family are called to do and that we would faithfully carry out that calling? Amen.